Welcome to Enhancing the Human. I'm Dr. Jenna Gadsis, a renowned expert in the field of human enhancement. I've spent decades of my life exploring all aspects of human health, which has allowed me to take people from extreme injury and disability to peak athletic performance. I use cutting edge advancements, breakthrough technologies, and scientific insights to push the boundaries of human capabilities. The human body is able to do so much more than you think. Let's start Enhancing the Human. Welcome to Enhancing the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jenna Gatsis, and today we talk to Mike Boyle. He's the owner of Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. He's a veteran in the field of pro sports and just sports performance and coaching. He was the coach of the Boston Red Sox when they won the World Series. And today on this episode, we go into Mike's number one way to succeed in business and pro sports. Let's get to it. As far as your philosophy, how did you come up with that? Is it your experience and just everything that you've been through back in your day when you were an athlete and then training it into coaching? How how did you uncover your what you love to do? Yeah, I mean, when you look at me, so I'm in year 42 of actually coaching. So I started coaching right out of college. So I think it's been a really gradual process. I would say I was probably the same dumb meathead that a lot of 22 year olds are when they start coaching. And I probably thought I knew a lot more at that time, but what really caused me to develop my philosophy was injured people who weren't getting better prompted me to think, okay, this isn't working. I need to figure out. And I, and I was always, I always say I was always smart enough to know I wasn't that smart. So I was always smart enough to know, Hey, I'm going to find the best expert. And I can remember, uh, probably Very early 1990s, I was working with a guy named Cam Neely, who's now the president of the Boston Bruins. But at that time, he was their best player. He had a patellofemoral thing going on that wasn't getting better. And somebody steered me towards Gary Gray. They said, you really need to go and talk to this guy, Gary Gray. And so first, I just called him on the phone. I mean, this this is the day and time sort of that we were in, right? So I call him on the phone. We have a conversation. And then I'm thinking, wow, this guy is like brilliant. And absolutely, uh, you know, light years ahead of everybody else. And then I think I got to go to his seminar. He had just started doing his seminars. I think I went to one of the first, when the foot hits the ground seminars. And suddenly I heard this guy talking about functional anatomy and just blowing my anatomy world up in terms of saying that, Hey, everything that you think, you know, about anatomy quads, extending the knee and hamstrings, flexing the knee and all that stuff. That's not real. That's made up stuff. And this is what actually happens. And so that was like huge light bulb moment for me in terms of thinking, wow, a lot of what I think I know probably isn't true. And then I just kept kind of finding those guys, whether it was Greg Cook or Stuart McGill, or I just kept looking for, okay, who are the really smart people? And it was mostly in the rehab world, truthfully. It was at that point in time, it wasn't in the coaching world. It was looking at people in the rehab world and saying, who's having unusual success? And then trying to figure out what do they think and why do they think it? And most of the time for me, those caused some, some big shifts in my way of thinking. So I started to look at things, whether it was Gary Gray first with functional anatomy. And now you think about this whole idea of functional training really grew out of Gary talking about the idea of close chain exercise and the foot, you know, what's happening when the foot is on the ground and what muscles really do. And then you start looking at that as it relates to core and you start looking at like, I started reading a lot of stuff, you know, even then for a while, Paul Check, even early on, right? Paul Check actually 
or as crazy as a bed bug as he is, mm-hmm. was way ahead of his time in terms of things he was talking about. And I can always remember when someone's talking about something and I have no idea, it's time to start studying. And I can remember Paul talking about, I mean, he was talking about transverse abdominis and breathing and things that, you know, and maybe at that point it wasn't hundred percent accurate, but it was way further along than what most people were doing. So it's been that kind of a, just a gradual, like a never ending game of learning. And that's what I feel like our jobs are and they should be, especially in the medical world, like anything, physical fitness, anything related to the human body, we are humans. We don't know everything. So you have to constantly be learning. Otherwise you're, you're setting your, your people up for failure, basically. Right. Exactly. And that's, and it's also just knowing that there's always going to be somebody smarter than you and that's okay. And the, the difference is, and I mean, you've heard me speak or seen me speak before. And I always talk about the essential skill is really cheating. In, in terms of it's, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know where things are. And if you know where they are, then you can go get them. And that's what I always love about, you know, the general like seminar idea. Hey, you just go, you can sit in the front row and you can listen to everything that person has to say. And tomorrow you can go put it into action. And sometimes like with you, you may go and think, you know, whatever, you know, cupping, massage you go and you try it and you think, oh, this really worked. I got really good results with this. This didn't work so well. I don't, I don't know if that holds as much water, but it was the same way in training. We started making changes and then you sort of audit the change. Did that change seem to lead to what I wanted it to? And for us, like you said, when you talk about clients or athletes, ultimately what you're looking at is the success of those people. If those people are being successful, if they're staying healthy, if they're, you know, in the professional sense, if they're making money, if they're signing contracts, then you're doing a good job. 100%. And if people are hurt all the time and they're not getting re-signed and they're getting cut, then you're probably not doing a good job. And that's the way you got to look at it. Reassess. <laughs> yeah. So as far as just the medical world in general, I feel like people are steered in the wrong directions a lot. And just with strength and conditioning, you know, you you think about they have a PA, they have athletic trainers, they have, you know, just a whole medical system in general backing these teams, basically. And it's like, how do you work against that with the injury prevention? Because I feel like not a lot of people are really working at the injury prevention side of things. And that's, we're just waiting to get hurt, basically. Yeah. Well, I think you have to realize one, that, that sometimes the team may be vested in more getting the player playing and keeping the player playing and not necessarily doing what's in the player's long-term best interest. And I figured that out kind of early on. I started butting heads with people kind of inside of organizations, realizing that, and also realizing that the people that they had said they brought in as experts maybe weren't experts and maybe weren't the best people. Because there's always, I think there's this sort of mythology around professional sports that every pro sports team has the best doctors and the best physical therapists and the best athletic trainers. And the reality is, if there's hundreds of these teams, then maybe somebody's got number one and somebody's got number 100. And that's just reality. And so it was, again, that auditing process. And the other thing that happens, I think, in professional sports is that because the seasons are so long and it's so busy, people tend to not do continuing education the way that they should because they don't get a whole lot of time off. So you can end up where somebody maybe was very good in the beginning. And 10 or 15 years into it, they're not very good anymore. They've missed some steps along the way. So I think 
if you're like me or like you and you really, if you really are and believe yourself to be a lifelong learner, then you're going to be constantly changing. Cause it's funny. People always make, they make fun of me. They talk shit about me, whatever, in terms of, oh, you know, he's always changing his mind. He flip-flops around and I'm like, yeah, cause I've been learning the whole time. And what I thought was right in 1983, when I first started coaching is not what's right right now. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be. So. And each individual is different. You know, you can't cater everyone with the same tools. Like you were saying with the modalities, I can't use this cupping a tool with someone that, you know, when egos are involved and there's a lot of, you know, men don't want to be in pain or it's, it's all ego-based and you have to pick what tool is important and what will work with that person at that time. So and important. So, so much of it is, because someone asked me a long time ago, they said, why are you having success at this? And I said, because I can get people to do what I want them to do. So even if I wanted them to do really at that time, what was considered some weird stuff, I could convince them to do it and they would do it. So when we said, Hey, you're not going to squat. When we said, you're not going to do a leg extension. We said, we're not going to use the leg press anymore, whatever it was. I was able to sell that in a way that I could get people to do it. And then I was getting the results. So people were getting better. And sometimes I was doing it in a way that might be deemed by some people to be unconventional. But what I was doing that was unconventional always seemed to become conventional. I just always, there's a quote I really like. I can't think of the name of the book right now, but the guy basically says, I'm not smarter than you. I just got to the information first. And I feel like that was me a lot in terms of, I don't think I'm that much smarter than anybody else, but I do think I have a way of getting to information sooner than most people. And a big part of that is one, being willing to go to conferences, being willing to stay and listen to people, being willing to to have conversations, being willing to be the dumbest guy in the room and, and ask people, okay, I mean, I've sat in front with Stuart McGill or guys like that and raised my hand and said, you got to explain that better. And not felt bad about it where other people might sit in the back and think, oh my God, I don't want to look stupid. And I always, when I start my seminars, I almost always start with, you're going to have two choices today. One will be to look stupid. One will be to remain stupid. I said, I'd much rather look stupid and then remain stupid than sit in the back and think, oh, I don't want to ask that question because it'll show that I don't know everything. I'd rather, I have no problem. I'll sit right up and ask the question and say, hey, I don't get it. Explain that better. Make, make that, make that make sense to me. And then what that became for me is that kind of became my skill. People always say, you're really good at dumbing stuff down. And I'm like, yeah, I got people to dumb it down for me and now I'm good and I can dumb it down for you. (laughs) And I always hear too, if you can't, you know, say to someone like you're explaining it to a third grader, you truly don't know it. So in pro sports, I had a PA that would always try to make things sound more difficult. So he would try to confuse people. And I'm like, what are you doing? That's for your own ego, you know? So there's a lot of egos and a lot of psychology behind teaching your message. You can know all the information in the world. And I realized that a long time ago, you know, I have this message, but you can't get through to some people because they know everything or they're biased or they got this guy that knows what they know. And so tell me a little bit about how you navigate the ego side of it. Uh, you know, I think you navigate the ego side by one, you know, I'm a big um, Stephen Covey guy, seven habits of highly effective people. I think if you think, he always talked about the idea of think win-win and he goes through that whole chapter in the book and he talks about the different philosophies in terms of lose-lose, win-lose. But if you think win-win, so let's just say, for instance, we've got that same PA, me trying to embarrass that guy isn't going to advance the situation for anybody. 
me figuring out, okay, this guy thinks he's smarter than he is. He wants to use a lot of big words. I got to let him do that. And I got to let him go on for a little bit. And then I've got to be the dummy and ask him, okay, can you explain that to me? Can you explain that better? Can you make that clearer? And sometimes for him, again, that plays right into, if it's a him, could be a her, right? But it plays right into kind of that superiority complex. Like, oh, yes, I can absolutely explain it to you. But like you said, that's an Einstein quote. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it. I have that slide in all my talks. And I always think if you can't, like, if you can't explain it to me, so that I can understand it, you don't understand it. And I, I say, you know, again, I'm, I've become like a walking cliche book, but I say to people, you don't want to be that teacher. Like you had that teacher in school where everyone said, oh, this guy, you know, he wrote the book on blank. And then you go to the class and you think, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. He sucks as a teacher. Like he can't get his point across. And I always thought, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the guy where people say, oh my God, you make it so simple. I know exactly, you know, I'm always trying to come up with the simplest possible analogy for people to make them look at me and go, oh, I get it. So you're always working in that way. So I think, like I said, thinking win-win, trying not to go for the win for you and not to have you look smart is probably the primary way in, in those pro sport situations. Well, as far as the, he was confusing the the athlete, you know, he was trying to make him, you know, like feel like he was, again, the superiority complex. But it's like that too is an art in itself, not pissing that ego off, but then being able to now, you know, relay the message to the athlete so that he understands and not confused. So that's a fine line too. I had to navigate that where you, you know, you mess up a few relationships because you, instead of pointing it out and, you know, calling everyone, if they don't see they're doing it, then you become the asshole basically. And sometimes, honestly, I've had, at times, I always think in those situations, if I have to choose, I always choose the athlete because they're ultimately, I look at that and think you're my client. If you're the athlete, you're my client. My responsibility is to you. If somebody's, if someone's going to play that kind of win, lose game with me, then I'm going on the side of my athlete. And I've, I've had situations where I, I can remember back in the nineties where I, I remember the same guy, Cam Neely, I, they had a new physical therapist come in and he said, well, first thing we got to do is get a Cybex test. And I was like, nope, not happening. And he was like, what do you mean not happening? He's like, you're a strength coach. You know, you're not going to tell me. And I said, I'm just telling you, he's not doing a Cybex test. You know, we've stayed away from this, you know, close chain, open chain, whatever you can have your own opinions. I said, but we've stayed away from open chain stuff and his knee has been really good. He will not do a Cybex test for you. I said, if he asks me if he should do a Cybex test for you, I will tell him he should not do a Cybex test. And I thought afterwards, I went to, to Cam, the athlete, and I said, just so you know, I said, I'm probably getting fired today. <laughs> I said, this is probably the last day. And he just looked at me, he goes, I don't care if you get fired. He said, I'm working with you. He said, I'll just go work with you. I'll pay out of my own pocket until I'm healthy again. He said, don't, you know, he said, don't even worry about it. Don't think about getting fired. And the funny thing is, I went into the meeting that day with the general manager and all these people and I didn't get fired because they knew ultimately they're looking at, Hey, this is their, our best player. He really believes in what this guy is doing. We've got a new guy who's coming in here, trying to flex his muscles a little bit and, you know, take over the situation and it's not working for him. And I was lucky. I won that battle, but I won that battle. And it's funny because I'm doing a talk for an MLB team tomorrow for their strength and conditioning staff. And one of the slides I always put in is Andrew Cleese and the Lion. So Andrew Cleese and the Lion is an Aesop's fable. And I don't know, you may know the story, you may not know the story, but basically Andrew Cleese gets, uh, he gets stuck. He, he's a slave. He runs away from, uh, in Rome, hides in a cave. 
And when he hides in the cave, he realizes there's a lion in the cave too. But the lion is sitting in the corner and the lion is whining and licking its paw. And he's thinking he's going to get eaten by the lion. He keeps looking at the lion and the lion just keeps licking its paw. And he realizes the lion's got a huge thorn in its paw. So Androcles kind of creeps over to the lion and he manages to pull the thorn out of the lion's paw. And the lion like hugs him and gives him, you know, starts licking his face. And eventually he starts going out, leaving the cave and killing animals and bringing them in for Androcles to eat. But eventually Androcles gets caught again. And what do they do in Rome? They feed you to the lions, right? So he has to go to the Colosseum and he's to be fed to the lions. And he's out, you know, he's standing in the middle like gladiator getting ready and the door flings up and the lion comes running out and the lion jumps up, puts his hands on his shoulder, licks his face. It's his line, you know, and it, it, he gets pardoned, you know, and obviously it's Aesop's fable, but uh, you know, he gets, he gets pardoned because he took care of the lion. So I always tell guys, I said, you know, one, take care of the lions. So, you know, when you're in a pro sports situation, when you know, there's this guy caring for that injured guy, changes your entire team dynamic. Like for me, you know, when I was working for the Bruins in the nineties, I could do no wrong because I was keeping their best player playing and keeping them healthy, putting a lot of time into that. And everybody's respect level for me went up because they knew I was going above and beyond what I needed to do to make this situation work. When I went to work for the Red Sox, I did exactly the same thing we had. And this is a crazy stat, but 40 man roster, we had 11 guys starting the season on the disabled list on our 40 man roster the first year that I was there. And I literally started scheduling individual training sessions with every one of those 11 guys as soon as I got there. So I was training, I was training so many of the injured guys that I had, I had guys on the roster, superstars, guys that were in the also game coming up being like, what about me? You know, when do I, you know, you, you spend an hour with this guy, spend an hour with this guy. When are you going to spend an hour with me? And I'm like, I'll spend an hour with you anytime you want. I said, you just, you tell me what, you know, we find the hour and I'll spend the hour. But it was because I started with these injured guys and people saw me with them and saw what I was doing. And then they thought, well, wait a second, you know, I'm healthy. I'm playing. I want that. I want some of this. So it's all, like you said, so much of it is uh, the art of interpersonal psychology, really that gets you where you got to go, particularly in professional sports. 100%. It's all psychology. I love the knowledge of everything. I've always been a lifelong learner and you know that. And to say things to people and you get the deer in headlight look over and over and over, it's like, how can I refine that? And how can I make it better to where I'm clearer? And so that it took a lot of time, but once you learn and you start to read books and you start to, you know, shadow people that you respect and you see, you know, you know, and you see them emulate something that you would like to be, it's, that's how you learn and you grow. So I just appreciate you having that mindset in general, because it's very rare. You know, I always, I've, I've been, I've been very lucky too, in terms of, you talk about that, you know, mentors, I can remember going down when I was still at the college level, I went down to the Patriots when Johnny Parker was the strength coach with the Patriots, who's like one of my favorite guys ever. And he's, he's probably now he's probably late seventies. Uh, he's been retired maybe 10 years, but we get down there and we think, okay, we're going to stand in the corner and be able to watch. And it was me and Jeff Oliver, who's now at Holy Cross has been at Holy Cross for like 25 years. And Chris Doyle, who was at Iowa for a really long time. And Chris then I think was a student still. And Jeff was my graduate assistant and me. And we just thought, Hey, we're going to get out and hang around at the Patriots for a day. We thought this was the coolest thing ever. And we get down there and Johnny, he's a good old Southern boy. And he's like, 
He's like, well, you guys can't stand around. He goes, would you like to coach? And I'm like, would I like to coach? He's like, yeah. He goes, it's just me. There's 40 guys in here. He said, why don't all you guys, you know, grab somebody and just start teaching them. And I thought I would love to do that with the New England Patriots. I'm 30 years old, probably at the time. And I go out and I start coaching. I still remember I'm coaching Ted Johnson and we're working on hand cleans because Johnny was a big Olympic lifting guy. And Johnny now had already won a couple Super Bowls. He had a couple Super Bowl rings. He was kind of the guy in the NFL. He comes up to Ted Johnson. 10 minutes later, he's like, Ted, what does Mike tell you that I don't tell you? What's Mike, what's Mike doing for you that I don't do? And I think I'm thinking to myself, my God, you know, here's a guy who's literally at the top of his game and could have been a total dick, right? Could have just said to us, stand over in the corner, keep your mouth shut, you know, don't ask any questions and, you know, leave when you're ready. And instead he gives us an opportunity to actually work with his guys. And then he, he has the humility to go to his own player and say, what's this guy helping you with that I don't help you with? So for me, very early on, whether it was Johnny or whether it was Alvar Meal or so many of those guys, you know, Mike Wojcik, who was my dorm director, these guys were all like professional sports legends, but I had these guys, luckily, they were people that I either knew or befriended and was able to watch and learn. I love that. It's so important. And I remember mine and just the people that were accepting and didn't, they had the humility and they didn't belittle people and they wanted people to learn because when you're growing up, you know, one little thing can change, you know, your trajectory in, a, in an instant. So it's, yeah, I, I still remember. And I feel like, you know, Chris at Perform Better always talks about this where the relationships and the network are everything. And I believe that more now than ever, because you never know what you can learn from someone, what you could teach someone, how you guys can better someone's lives together. So I just, it's, I appreciate that story because it's, it's so important. People but undermine right. that, but Chris, Chris is the master of that. Mm-hmm. I say to people all the time, he's the best businessman I know because he's never worried about business. Right. Ever. Like you never look at him and think, oh, he's thinking about money or he's mm-hmm. trying to sell me something. 99 times out of 100, he's trying to figure out how he can do something for you. But that's made him, I always say to people, people think of perform better and they think of education. And that's one of the greatest marketing plays in the Ever. history of our industry. Because they sell equipment. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. But Chris realized that good education sold equipment. And even when we very, because I started with him when he very first started doing it. And one of the things that we said was that, okay, no sales pitches. You know, no one's going to get up there and pitch the BOSU ball. No one's going to get up there and pitch, you know, whatever. No one's going to get to go sell their product. Everyone's just going to do a talk about something they feel strongly about. And and then if people decide that's going to make them buy a medicine ball or whatever it is, then great. If they don't buy anything. That's also great. But like you said, relationship-wise, people became perform better people. They, I know people like, oh, I don't like with me. I don't buy anything. Anything that I can buy from perform better, I buy from perform better. I don't buy it. I don't price shop. I won't go on Amazon and think, oh, I can save 10 bucks on a medicine ball. I just go to perform better and I get it. And that's, that's the brilliance kind of of Chris and of that company. And I know in NASCAR, you know, we, I was there with them for about four years and part of them upgrading their things, you know, we put in a whole facility. I put in subfloor. They didn't have anything. Like you said, everyone thinks pro sports, you have the best of the best, but not always, especially in like old school sports. But, um, 
what they brought in engineers. And so they were trying to do all the numbers games. And so it's like, they only based everything on numbers and the guy's hearts weren't in it because they knew they were just a number and the teams just started plummeting. Like it was insane to me. And they were just like, oh, we just have to think about the numbers. And I'm like, these guys are guys. These are relationships. These are people. And so it's unbelievable what can happen if you don't care about the relationships. And then to have it only be, you know, a motive through relationships, it's unbelievable what you can achieve and what people can then be within that. Because I feel like people are more creative and they're more accepting of themselves in that type of environment. Oh, absolutely. There's no, I, I think it's almost a form of reverse psychology. Yes. In the sense that if I make it all about you, you're going to really buy into what I want you to do, mm-hmm. which ultimately is what I wanted to have happen. I, I achieved my goal. I got you to do what I wanted you to do, but I did it by, you know, it's, it's a bit back, you know, again, cliches, right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. When people think that you're genuinely invested in them, their behavior towards you is entirely different. 100%. Forever, I feel. Because mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, where we are, you know, I feel like, especially where I am, you know, in LA, it's just everyone wants something for you or from you. And so when you give that person the feeling of you truly care about them, I just posted something about this recently, how love is the number one thing to help people grow and to change people's lives. Because that one little bit of hope that you give them that you can help them, well, their nervous system completely changes. Their brain's like, oh, okay, I can do this. This is fine. And they do it. Yeah. And particularly also, one thing you also realize is that even the most successful person in the world is probably insecure. Yeah. And I think that's also really hard when, when you haven't been around a lot of successful people, you put them up on a pedestal and you think there's something, you know, sort of amazing about them. And usually what's amazing about them is a particular talent in a particular area. And that's it. Yes. And the rest of them might be, you know, an incredibly insecure person who wants somebody to care about them and be nice to them and think about them. And if you do that, again, you develop that relationship where people, you know, you customer for life, which is ultimately what you want. 100%. And it's, I don't know. I just feel like the energy you get from that and seeing someone grow and and then making it their motive and their motivation to want to be with you. It's how you're truly going to change them because they're not changing for you. They're changing for themselves because they want to, you know? Exactly. So as far as everything that you're doing with your business and just transferring on your coaching methods, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm in the process of doing to just step back a little bit and be able to have it be a passion again, not just a you know workhorse thing. Because you know, when you get results, it's like people want to keep coming, keep coming. And so it's hard for us being givers all the time to give to ourselves. But tell me how you transitioned into that, how you started training people to train underneath you and how that all worked. Well, it was funny. The first time I can still remember, I took my first intern because my father had coached his father in high school. And another friend of ours called me up and said, uh, this kid, Glenn Harris, Glenn now is in his fifties. He's been the strength coach at BU for 25 years. But initially he was a kid from Springfield college who needed an internship. And this guy called me up and said, your dad coached his dad, blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, oh my God, I don't need an intern. What am I going to do with an intern? Because at that point in time, I was so full of myself that I really thought that nobody, I'm, I'm so you know unique and so special that how's anyone going to be able to help me? And then Glenn showed up 
And Glenn made my life so much easier. I couldn't believe having just having another person around. And I thought initially my first thought was, boy, what an idiot I was that I hadn't done this sooner. And then I started to do it more. And then those people started to get jobs. So people were looking at me and saying, hey, obviously you, you don't want to leave. You don't want this job. Who are we hiring? Okay, hire this guy who was my assistant or was my graduate assistant or whatever it was. And I started then, you eventually start to get some real satisfaction out of realizing that, wow, I'm, I'm helping these other people to achieve their goals. Because, and that's what I mean, you know, you think about ego, you know, in your twenties, you've just got a massive ego. You think you're way, it's the Dunning-Kruger thing, right? You think you're way smarter and way more important than you are. I can remember going away to a conference, actually leaving Glenn. So Glenn was there. I went to the NSCA conference and it was probably one of the first times I left and wasn't there for two days of workouts. And part of me so wanted everything to fall apart while I was gone. And then part of me was so relieved when I got back and thought, wow. I left. I actually went away for a couple of days. My wife went with me. We had a couple of days off and the world didn't end. So realizing, because people would always say stuff like, oh, you've got to be able to clone yourself. And I used to think, I have no idea how you do that. But over time, you start to realize you do it by finding good people and teaching them. It's so not complicated. It's so simplistic. Um, Brandon Marcello one year recommended a book called The One Thing to Me. And if you haven't read The One Thing, you should. But so the basically it's a it's a small book. And it, when I was reading it the whole time, I was cursing Brandon. I was like, Brandon, one thing. I got like nine million things. But you get to the end of the book, and the end of the book basically says you need to arrive at the one thing that by doing it would make everything else easier. And so I, I sat with that problem for a little bit and I thought the one thing that by doing it would make everything else easier. And I realized all of a sudden I was like staff training, right? The better job I do with staff training, the better everything becomes for me, the better every coach is, the better it is for me, the more they understand the business, the better it is for me. So I really, and I think I had always put a lot into it before, but I put that much more into it. Even now, I, I mean, I, I really prepare for our staff meetings in a way that I didn't even five years ago or six years ago before I'd read the book in terms of I'm constantly thinking about the, you know, if I can affect the 20 or 25 people that work for us, then they can go out and they're going to affect 25 people that are training with us. And you get this massive exponential growth of what you're trying to do which for a long time I couldn't do. I tried to do that by myself at the collegiate level or with one other person at the collegiate level. And I think you hit that number of, hey, this is going to be whatever, 20 teams. And we're going to probably really do a good job with 10 of those teams just because we don't have the, the manpower to get out and, and create that exponential growth that you need. It's hard though. That's a whole thing in itself. You know, mm-hmm. like having to delegate to people and having to delegate to people who may or may not know themselves enough to understand if they can tolerate the task or handle what's, you know, what the task entails. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> like, but that's why initially it's picking the people. Right. If the mistake is made in the people picking stage, then everything else after that fails. So that's why we've been really, really picky about I got to get the right people. It's, and that goes back, you know, the kind of the, the John Gordon 
thing, you know, get the right people on the bus, get the wrong people off the bus before you ever move the bus. Right. And we've been really, really lucky with that. We've done a great job of getting really like assembling a really good group of people around us and then doing a really good job of, and again, it, it's like, you look at it and think, okay, how much autonomy do I give that person? One of the things I've always said to people in your situation is that sometimes it becomes almost like a, a orthopedic surgeon who's running two operating rooms. So you might have two people helping you, but each one of them might be helping you with one client, but you're still helping them. Before it's almost like before I give you your own clients, we're going to share clients so that I can show you how I want this to be handled and I can show you how I want it to be done. And then eventually I'll get to the point where I might be sitting in the back in a chair and my two people are now handling two clients and everything's great. And my, my clients are happy because the one thing like in your world, they want you. That's what they're paying for. And you've got to get them confident enough in somebody else that they can think. And, and part of that, that's your ego, right? You've got to get to the point where you think it's not important to me to be the best person at this. It's important to me to be the person who can instill enough confidence in somebody else for me to not be here. And I got to write cliches. I would say the goal of the coach is to eliminate the coach. So eventually you want to get to a point where I always think like at, at Mike Boyle strength and conditioning, some people don't even think Mike Boyle exists. We had a, literally had a girl two summers ago. <laughs> and somebody said something about me. I was over the training group and they said, you know, well, that's Mike's group. And the girl's like, it's not Mike's. She goes, Mike Boyle's dead. There's not even a, Mike Boyle's like, this place is named after him. And the kid was like, no, that's not true. He's, he's very much alive. And he comes in every day. And she's like, that's not, that old guy's not him. That's I, I mean, I've had a couple, and I had another kid to go get my ID. I had to go get my driver's license out of the office and show him so that I could prove to him that I was in fact Mike Boyle. That's amazing. But no, even the admin stuff though. So with me, like what's good about like what you said when you get results, people are like, I don't know why everyone uses this, but they're like, if you told me you needed to punch me in the face, I would let you. And I'm like, I love that I have that with people, but like, <laughs> and so I can give people to someone else and they would be okay with it because they know I would never refer someone or refer something without it being fully vetted because I'm just, I'm like that. I will not put my name on something unless I know it's something that I truly believe in. So that, the patient side of it, I'm not worried about. That's been easy for me because I, you love teaching people that are, passionate about helping people, but it's the whole, the other aspect of like the admin stuff and the things that have, you know, a, a business, it's crazy how much yeah. comes with a business, you know, and especially now with the technology and the videos and the, this and the, it's nuts. I've been really lucky. We got so lucky. Oh, I don't know. It may even, it's probably eight years now, but I had a, one of my friends, we started, we were looking for somebody to do that kind of work for us to do sort of just administrative work. And one of my friends came and said, I have a friend who might be interested in this job. And I thought, oh, well, let me meet her. And her name is Carrie. And Carrie shows up. And she was obviously really smart. She had been in business. She was looking more for like a mother's hour kind of gig because her kids were all good athletes. She's got a son who's actually now is playing in uh, Arizona's minor league system, but it was a real good college baseball player. Her other younger son is playing college baseball. And I think she wanted to, be able to go to games and have a little flexibility to her schedule, but still wanted to work, still wanted to be challenged. 
And she's been, I always say the best thing that's ever happened to our business, because I always joke that she's my boss in terms of she runs the show. She has a really good business head, but we, we were, and I have to say in that case, we were kind of lucky just because somebody said, Hey, you should talk to this woman. You'd probably like her, but yeah, if you, if you find that person overpay them. That's what I was going to say. What was your process well, behind it? I'm like, where did you find well, this? Well, it started out like hourly. <laughs> like it was just, yeah. she was working for whatever. I don't remember what the hourly wage was, but it was kind of hourly wage. And and I said, hey, you know, 20 hours a week or whatever you want to work. You want to work more, great. If you want to work less, great. If you want to go to the kids' games, great. And then gradually she just kind of, she was one of those people. She just took more and more responsibility. And I'm the same way in terms of, I don't have any desire to like, for me, I don't, I don't know how our credit card machine works. <laughs> if you said to me, like people come in and say, I want to pay. And I'm like, there's got to be someone around who'll know how to do that. <laughs> it is clearly not me, but I've not learned it intentionally because I, if I did learn it, then I would have to do it. I don't answer the phone ever because I found it when someone got me on the phone, they wanted to keep me on the phone. Like when someone said, Oh, who's this? And then I say, Oh, it's Mike Boyle. That, oh, that, you know, then they want to have a half hour conversation. So I made my rule. I said, I will not answer the phone. I will not get on the phone unless you can, re- unless you really believe that it's someone that I need to talk to. Cause you know, people would call all day and just ask you all day, like freaking shell answer, man. You know, they'll ask, just ask stupid questions and expect you think you have nothing better to do. Like I'll just, you know, walk away from my groups and talk to them on the phone. So, and she's great that way. She's learned all the answers. She's smart. She knows. She'll always say to me, this guy doesn't, he says he knows you, but he doesn't really know you. And I, I, she'll tell me the name. I'm like, you're right. I have no idea who that is. But people will kind of play that game in terms of, they'll go, oh yeah, you know, I, I know Mike, you know, yeah, we, you know, but this guy, common friend, whatever. So she's been great in terms of, there's like nothing she can't do. She's like freaking superwoman. One of those. I have, yeah. I have a few that are. Amazing. Yes, I need a few of those, a few more of those. But um, you said your whole process behind picking people. I know she was, you know, introduced you through someone else. But what is your process? Like, what are the factors that, you know, align with what you believe in as far as someone that's a good person to add to your team? Number one, interpersonal skill. Number one, absolutely. In terms of, I don't, I don't care how smart you were. And I've said this a thousand times in lectures. I do not know anybody's grades that works for us. I don't know if they graduated first in their class, last in their class. But the good thing for us is because of the number of interns that we get, we're able to pick out of those interns and figure out at the end of an internship process, okay, we're going to keep one or two of these people around. What I learned too is that I really rely on the other staff members to tell me who they want to stay around because I had one of our guys who's now at Boston university he was with the Bruins for a while is a great young coach. But when he was very young, he was a little too outspoken sometimes, but was a great worker. So he kind of got away with more with me than most people did. And I had said, Oh, I like this intern. And he looks at me, he goes, yeah, he's great when you're around. And I was like, well, can't be mean. I'm great when I'm around. He goes, pretty much what I said. He's great when you're around. And I was thinking, what a wise ass answer. But then I thought about it more. I said, I got to dig into that more. And he was just like, Mike, he plays you. You know, when you're around, he's like Mr. Enthusiasm. You know, he gets, you know, boom, he sees you and he's, you know, he's up out of his seat and he's running around. He's coaching. He said, you walk out the door, he freaking, it's like he takes his batteries out again. And I thought, wow, 
I'm gradually becoming that guy in terms of that somebody can manage up to, right? Put on a good show when I'm around and then be a total shit when I'm not. So I started to think, okay, you guys pick. I know who I like. I know what I've watched during, you know, during whatever time I was here, but you guys are going to tell me which two, which three are going to stay because you guys are with them now eight hours a day or 10 hours a day where I'm not. And that, that helped our process. So Kevin Carr was one of my partners now who's awesome, but he did his first internship when he was 19. So he wanted to be an intern. He interned at 19. He just finished his sophomore year at UMass. He was a little quiet, a little shy. And uh, Nicole Rodriguez was kind of our, our head coach at that time. I don't know if you've ever run across Nicole, but she's Yeah, we awesome. all spoke together that one time. Exactly. Yep. So Nicole is awesome. It. Yep. And uh, Nicole, you know, I said, okay, who, you know, she said, well, you got to bring Kevin back next summer. And I was like, Kevin, really? It's like, she's kind of quiet. I, I, I didn't get that sense. And she was like, Mike, he's going to be a superstar. I'm just telling you. And I was like, okay, if, you know, if you're willing to stick your neck out like that, if you think that he's a guy we definitely bring back, he's a guy we definitely bring back. And every year he got better and better. And I mean, to the, now to the point where like, he, he's ridiculously good, but I might've missed on him if I wasn't trusting our staff, if I wasn't looking at people and saying, Hey, this is your decision to make as much as it is mine. I might, I always look, I have veto power. I might look and think, no, I hate that person. We're not doing it. But generally speaking, I'm not, I'm going to let them decide who it is they'd like to work with every day, as opposed to me picking them and sort of forcing them all together. So that's, that's kind so of interesting. Yeah, that's, that's a big part of our process. Such a good process. What about in the beginning phases for people when you don't have people to trust? Like, how do you know that you can trust them enough to make that type of decision? The best person for me is always a personal reference. So I want someone, if someone, and, and I've learned to ask the right question. So I don't trust references per se on a piece of paper. If someone's, it's kind of like if, if someone's got a list of references, I don't, I'm not as interested in that as I am finding out, do I know somebody that's ever worked with this person before and what did they really think of them? And then I've learned to ask because I got screwed once. Now I ask people, my first question is, we meet up again six months from now, what's our conversation going to be like? And it's amazing how people change their reference and said, well, you know, Mike, he's a little, he's a little, you know, he's got some quirks. And I'm thinking five minutes ago, he was a question higher. I said, now that I'm saying I'm going to hold you to this six months from now, or maybe because I always look at it from the standpoint, if I recommend the wrong person for the job. I've screwed everybody who comes after that person because the person I recommended that person to is going to hold it against me. And I've seen people like I, I had a friend one time, he was recommending the hell out of his assistant because he wanted to get rid of his assistant. He said, I got to get rid of this guy. And he was writing him these glowing recommendations because he wanted them gone. Oh my gosh. But it was a good lesson for me in terms of, okay, don't always, don't trust the reference. It's kind of like, don't trust the, the, you know, the immediate previous landlord reference. Look for two yeah. landlords to go. Because yes. that landlord, if they're a shitty tenant, that landlord's dying to get rid of them and is going to tell you, hey, this person is great. But Mark, all right, so once I just say hi to Jenna. Let's Jenna from Moose. Hello. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so crazy. 
He's uh, so tall. No, he is. He's way taller than me. How insane. That was the best. We did like, we were playing on jungle gyms. That was the best. Exactly. The best. Back in the day when I was still in school. A little boy. He was probably eight, nine or 10 years old. So crazy. So yeah. crazy. Life. I don't know. Um, I lost my train of thought with what you were saying. Me too. Sorry. I was, I, I, no, it's okay. Yes, I, I said, I gotta, I just, I, gotta, I, went, I just came back from the UFC fights yesterday and, um, we went and saw, saw a few fights. But yeah, so I just flew in last night at like midnight. So this is <laughs> this is my life of chaos nonstop. Because <laughs> I can't really live. I work so much that it's just nonstop. So I'm, I'm learning the, the balance of everything. Fun stuff. Like, you know, it's going amazing. to the fight, I guess. Right? Please work, right? Probably. Yes. Yeah. So everything's always work. Networking. You know, it's like I everything for me is work, I feel. And I just love... I feel like we have something, and I speak about this with Perform Betters, we have something that no one else has, you know, like we're the up and coming industry. I feel like we're going to be the next healthcare. And it's so important to be able to have this information to share for people because it's it's going to change the world. I feel like with how the pharmaceutical industry is changing and it's pushed so much right now that it's- well, No, honestly, this, and I crazy. give- Love him or hate him, guys like Piertita, Piertia and Huberman and Andy Galpin and people like that are really doing a good job of making it obvious to people how important being healthy is. Yep. So it is. I, I tell people all the time and I tell our staff, we are the best medical practitioners in the world because we have way more capability than any doctor to change somebody. And if, understanding. Right. And if we do a good job, if we can do a good job and get that person. And even for us, I mean, our average client is spending two hours a week with us. You know, our better, we're up to probably, I'd say 33% or three days a week now. But we've got to really make those two hours impactful with those people. So it's, uh, you're right. I mean, it's, it's the good thing is our industry is going to get better and better and better because one, these you know baby boomers like me are getting older. They have money to spend. They are starting to acknowledge. I had one of my clients who was very wealthy, one of my favorite guys, a guy named Steve Belkin. He used to always say, Mike, you're going to spend money on your health. He said, you just have to decide when. He said, it could be a really great nursing home. He said, it could be an amazing casket. He said, or it could be personal training twice a week, a massage every week. And that's what he did. He had a whole, a whole setup of how he was going to organize his life when he was in his 60s. And I remember looking at him and thinking, it's the greatest sales pitch I've ever heard. Because you can say to some of these people with money, you're going to spend it. You just have to decide, you know, do you want to be spending it from a wheelchair? Do you want to be spending it from a walker? Do you want to be spending it on a cane? We had a guy come in the other day, great guy, owns a roofing company, just had both knees replaced. But I mean, when he started, he could barely walk and he's already better. Like he's already moving better. And he's one of those guys that I might've looked at him two years ago and thought, uh, it's too late. I don't know if we can help this guy. But now I, I look at it and think, I don't think there's anybody that we can't help. I don't care if they can move, if they can get themselves into the facility, we can help them. I love that. I have a 94-year-old right now. 94 years old. 
She's yeah. like, you're the only one that can help me. You know, they, I, she has, she owns a lot of things out here and she has money. So these doctors just keep saying surgery, surgery. She's had so many surgeries and now she's to the point where she has pain, but they can't, she's not a candidate for surgery. So I'm like, so where do you go from here? You know? And it's like, you know, they look, they don't look at the main factors and variables that they can control in their lifestyle that can change their health and their outcome long-term. It's just band-aiding. I know? was looking, there was just something on Twitter, it's muscle strength. Muscle strength is the number one thing that you can change. Yes. Particularly in the aging population, mm-hmm. but it's finding people who are smart enough. This is, I'm, I'm doing a talk for at a chiropractic seminar on this idea, what I call orthopedic cost. But on somebody, you need somebody that can select the right exercises for you so that you can, in fact, get stronger. Because again, we get these morons who are out there, you know, with people like that, you know, people in their 80s and you see them doing box squats and, you know, and you look and think, like, like what is wrong with you? But Literally. the good part from my perspective is that I think if that's the competition, good for us. Because <laughs> more for us, because no. we're going to do a way better job with these people and they are going to get better and they're going to tell their friends. And, and that's been our business. And it's true, you know, and it's, it's so sad because people can feel the difference instantly. They start going through those box jumps and things and you're, you're hurting people and then they're not motivated to continue and they fall off. But I feel like people like us are also very, we're humble, but we're also insecure in our own right where we, we, I don't know. I feel like a lot of trainers and coaches don't believe in themselves as much as they should because these doctors belittle them and they're like, oh, you don't know. But I'm I'm like, you have no idea how much you truly know. They're, these physicians, a lot of times, they know their one avenue of work and that's it, you know? So it's it's scary to think, but I try to motivate people and encourage coaches to just respect themselves enough to know that they're way more important than they realize ever. Yep. But also they've got to continue to educate themselves so that they can, there's still too many meatheads, too many bodybuilders, too many powerlifters, too many people who don't get it, that you're not going to be successful with those philosophies in an aging population. And that's where kind of the, you know, whatever the, the functional training idea really works. Right. It works unbelievably when you start to get into this population of people who have a much more, I would say a much more limited menu. You can't just pick anything and say, oh, any exercise is going to work for this person because it won't. You've got to find something. You've got to find a way for them to move that's going to allow them to gain strength and allow them to engage this idea of progressive resistance in some way. And yet you've got to be able to do that in a way that makes them feel better and not feel worse. In a safe environment. Yeah. Those are my favorite though. Yeah. (laughs) It's so interesting because it's like a game. It's a it's how well do you know your skill enough to modify it in ways with different variables. Those those are the best. Exactly what it is. I love it, and I I feel like we are the next big thing when it comes to healthcare because people are looking for that. They don't want a band aid anymore. They don't want to take a pill and then have to take another pill for it. And so I feel like the next ten years is going to be huge for the health and fitness world with training. Yes, I would agree. So. As far as takeaway from like the number one thing that you you try to change within an athlete's regimen or just anyone, it could be strength and conditioning with anyone. What's the number one thing as far as takeaway that you can say will make the greatest impact? Show up. Keep showing up. I'm a huge, another great book, Slight Edge, Jeff Olson's book, but he talks about the slight edge is basically showing up because it's amazing how many people want, I want to get better 
But even like with you people, I want to be, I want to get better, but I want to be passive on the table. I want you to make me better. And there's a point where for you, whatever your hands can make somebody feel better, but it's like, okay, now you need to get up and cement that change in place for me. You need to get up and make your muscles more accepting of your load, your body weight, so that we don't have to keep doing this over and over again. So the number one thing I would say with people is start, start training, find, find a really good, really smart trainer and realize that really good. If you look at me, I always say, I do not, no one has ever asked me for unsolicited exercise advice in a gym (laughs) ever. Cause they would just, like I always said, if I was standing there with a hundred personal trainers, I might be the hundredth person you'd ask. (laughs) And so you need to realize that that is in fact the case that it's not, it's not what somebody looks like. You don't need, you know, the girl with the best body or the guy that's jacked with ripped abs or whatever it is. You need somebody smart and you need somebody. I had a football coach friend of mine and he used to say when we were recruiting, he said, he goes, I want to recruit a kid who's give a shit meter runs really, really high. And I'd be like, he goes, you got to find somebody who's give a shit meter runs really, really high. Find somebody who's going to take it personally if you're not improving. And then also realize that it's it's baby steps. You know, if you're the client, you get to look at it and think, sometimes I can't tell you the number of times people will say things like, well, that wasn't that hard. And then and, and I said, I know. And the next time you come, it'll be just that much harder. Right. And 10 weeks from now, you'll be amazed at what you're doing. But at no point will you have thought, oh my God, you know, I, I can't tie my shoes. I can't get off the toilet. You won't have any of those experiences. But 10 weeks from now, you'll your life will have changed drastically because we will have done it in such small increments that you won't even really have noticed that it happened. Right. And that's the thing, just like we were saying earlier about, you know, the behind the curtain where we build it up so big in our heads that we just out motivate ourselves, you know? And so those little steps and just showing up, it's the the first step to, and it's yeah. not that hard. You just show up and it just happens. Yeah. So like that's that. the great, especially when you're deconditioned. It's one thing, you know, if you're like, you said, one of the questions that was on your list, you know, how do you help somebody in the top 1%? Hey, you cross your fingers. You know what I mean? You hope. Right. When you take somebody who's deconditioned, it's so easy. It's literally just get them to come to the gym, just get them to do, you know, a push, a pull, a couple leg exercises, some sort of basic core exercise, just start showing them breathing exercises, just get them to do a little bit of interval training on a, you know, on an air bike. I mean, all of these things are going to make a massive change in somebody who's unfit. So true. It's so true. And it's like the what's going to make the most change. A lot of people want to do the fads and the next greatest thing, or this looks cool on Instagram, do what's going to help them the most, whether it you know, helps you or helps your ego or not. You know, That's what's important. And that's what you have, like luckily or unluckily for you, you have way more of that out where you are in terms of, you know, you've got still got the crazy juice cleanse people and the bar classes and all that. I mean, I always <laughs> think if somebody tells you something that seems too good to be true, Except the fact that it probably is. But that's and- what's great. You know me, like I learned. And so I've learned this business, even in NASCAR, they were like, why should I do this? And you know, why don't you do it? I was like, well, I don't, I don't live bitch weight. So let me go get the weight I would do. And then I show them. And they're like, oh, okay, I'll do it. So it's like, you have to, 
know yourself enough to be confident in what you know and then stand up for yourself and you can get through to people. So with the passive stuff, I've really learned how to refine it to where I'm only on the table with someone for a little bit. So I work with like extreme injuries, but then also getting someone to where they're extremely skilled within their their skill and they're not going to get hurt. So like health prevention type stuff. So it's it's so much fun to navigate all of that and all the different variables that actually impact people. Yes, it is. That's the game. Well, I appreciate you so much and I appreciate what you're doing in our industry and just everything you've brought to our industry. It's unbelievable. You've helped me so much, just your personality in general. Like I said, you help people and people like you help people be more creative because you don't belittle people. You you want to help and make people better. And so I appreciate that so much. And I appreciate you as a coach and person always. Well, thank you. I enjoy it. Hopefully next time I get to California, I'll get to see you. Definitely got to come out. We got a whole facility now, the House of Pain. We got cold tubs, saunas, all that. So it's it's interesting just to, to navigate the people out here. But no bullshit. We are, are as real as it can get. So come by anytime. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. All right. Take care. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. I hope you learned something. And thank you again to Mike Boyle for his willingness to share his expertise. His insight is invaluable and we appreciate his years of experience in the industry. Thank you again for tuning in to the Enhancing the Human podcast and we'll see you next time. 